and welcome to Reliving My Youth, the show where we look back at pop culture from the 70s, 80s, and 90s. My name is Noel Fogel. My guest today is former actor Chris Demetrol. Chris is best known for playing Jeremy Tupper on HBO's Stream On, which was probably the network's first breakthrough show. We talk about his time on the show. Chris had a memorable recurring role playing Jack on ABC's Lois and Clark. He tells me why he left the show and the drama behind it. Chris guest starred on a ton of late 80s and 90s shows, including Star Trek The Next Generation, The Wonder Years, Blossom, 90210. We also talk about the movie classic Blank Check and his role in it. And Chris played the title role in The Adventures of Jules Verne, which was the first show shot in HD. Here's my conversation with Chris. And helping me relive my youth today is Chris Demetral. Chris, thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, it's an honor. Um, <laughs> it's, it's fun when you think about um, uh, your youth and, and past, so uh, hopefully I was able to impact that in a fun way, so I'm, I'm excited to talk about it. Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, okay, so we'll, we'll I'll, I'll start with, you know, Star Trek for one second. We'll get to how you got into the business in a sec, because one thing always bugged me about your episode, uh, I, it was Future Imperfect, you played John Ruc- You're probably the only actor in Star Trek history to probably play three characters in one show. <laughs> right. You know, so you played uh, John Luke Riker, who was the son of uh, Commander Riker in an alternate, I guess, uh, alternate universe, alternate reality, I should say, and found out that you were another character, played Ethan, and then it turned out that you were an alien called Barash. At the end of the episode, you went away, you beamed up to the Enterprise, never to be seen or heard from again. What do you think happened to your character? <laughs> such an amazing role, and, I, and I've gotten so many people um, who, who said so many um, really sweet things about it over the years. I, I think it was a different kind of episode. I think the tone was different. I think the, uh, the father-son dynamic was something um, original and a different, uh, and I absolutely loved uh, Next Gen. That was really, uh, out of all the projects that have ever been on, I've really never come into one where I was actually a fan of the show. Right. Um, if I booked a guest star, of course, I'd, you know, I'd want to you know, watch that show a little bit, get up to speed, try to get a, a sense for what it was. But um, I was already watching every single episode of Next Gen, so to jump into the world, to be part of it, was, was just phenomenal. Um, to hang out with the prop guy who let me play with all of the phasers and all of the Klingon, you know, war toys. I mean, just, just really super amazing. So, yeah, you, you know, when you, when you guest star, you never know if it's going to have, you know, any episodes that continue past that, and unfortunately in this case it didn't, but um, it, it was it was a really unique uh, experience, and like you said, it's, it's an episode that um, kind of, you know, pulls the rug out from underneath you one time, and then it pulls out the rug out from underneath you another time, so I, I think it was different, it just it felt very different than the other episodes uh, typically in that show. Um, one thing a lot of people don't know is they say, so, you know, you were that little alien at, at the end of the show, too, when we just actually true, but what they don't know is with child labor laws, uh, you can only spend so many hours on the set versus how old you are. So I was actually in set school at that time, so that was another actress in that alien suit playing me because I literally had run out of hours to be on the actual set. Okay. <laughs> that's that's good to know. But like, how was the like rest of the cast? Were they pretty... I heard that was pretty like loose set. It's... Um, they, they had a lot of <laughs> a lot of personality. Um, I was a huge fan of Data too. So okay. you know, being super dorky, I was kind of like to Brent Spiner, like, is it tough to you know play a robot? <laughs> <laughs> I I know I came up like super dorky fanboy, but I, I it was just a legit question that I had. Right. Um, but he was he was great. Um, the first time Patrick Stewart rolls onto the set. Uh, he, he's in a, in a leather jacket and jeans with a no t-shirt on underneath. I mean, just totally against what you think that you'd see, um, you know, Patrick Stewart. Right. So, um, I remember Michael talking to Michael Dorn about, you know, how early his call times were because, they have, you know, they had to apply the Klingon makeup every, every day. So he was, you know, saying that, you know, he was kind of jealous of the fact that everyone would have a good call time, but his was super early to get him prepped for the day. So. Yeah, I mean, that cast was amazing, and like I said, just being a, le- a legitimate fan of Next Gen, uh, it was great just to talk to all of them and um, gather fun stories and interact with them. There, there was 
that's probably why they had the longevity that they did. When you have a cast and crew that really enjoys being with each other, um, just good things happen. You know that you have that that synergy between the two. Yeah, and you know, lasted seven seasons and made was it four movies so yeah it definitely and it's, you know just had the 30th anniversary of the first episode last year so it's, it's pretty wild how uh how quick 30 years goes by yeah yeah i know it's true and that's what i was thinking about um when, when we talked about um you know getting together and doing a podcast and i, I counted backwards too and i'm like wow has it really been 30 years since the beginning so yeah it's uh amazing how time flies yeah, absolutely. Now, speaking of like time flying, like thirty years, how um, how did you first get your start in the, in the business? Yeah, I was I was really um, incredibly fortunate, very very blessed. What, the way that I got into the industry doesn't usually work under any normal scenario. Uh, there was in the, in the newspaper there was an open casting call, and they were doing a remake of Night of the Living Dead. Okay. They were just having anybody in the area come in and you know audition for roles, and I think a lot of it was probably going to be for extra work as well. And um, I I'd wanted to be an actor since I was a little kid, um, you know, five, six years old. But you know, so do most kids. Most kids also want to be firefighters and astronauts and you know uh, princesses and things like that too. So um, I definitely had an interest in it, but I didn't know what I wanted to do with it. And um, having moved to California when I was around um, seven, I, I didn't know where to go, what to do. I, I went down the wormhole of some of those um, get you know get quick, money quick uh, schemes where the, you know they say, well, if you want to be an actor, come give us five hundred dollars. We'll work on your headshots. We'll introduce you to people. So um, you know those things didn't work out. So. Yeah, I, I was about 10 years old, and again, there was that, you know, that uh, article in the newspaper for, you know, uh, the local filming of that. Um, I interviewed. It was really tough. I remember sitting there in the uh, the room where the other actors were at, and they, they, had, they had pictures. They had resumes. I had nothing. <laughs> I, I was just going in completely cold. So I was very fortunate. The casting director, she liked me. She said, you know, I, I think you're actually about two years uh, too young for this role, but, you know, one of my friends is one of the biggest children's agents in Los Angeles. I'll, I'll get you over to her. And she did. Um, Judy Savage, and, you know, I'm so incredibly thankful to her. She was indeed one of the biggest children's agents in the business, if not the biggest one, and she took a chance on me. She she brought me in, um, signed me, and uh, less than a year later, the role started to come in, and it was it was an amazing ride. I mean, it was just almost always one job after the next. So, you know, usually you're, <laughs> you're, you know, you're the cousin of a producer or you're in the industry because your family's in the industry. So for me to come in cold, not knowing anyone, not having any kind of connections and being able to fall into the lap of a, you know, just a, a power agent for children, it's just kind of amazing. It just normally doesn't work out that way. So when, when people say, you know, how did you break in? I'm happy to tell them the story about it, but I think they're always looking to say, oh, perfect. So if you followed steps X, Y, and Z, I can do that too. To which I say, you know, the way I fell into it was falling into it backwards, and it normally doesn't work out that way. Yeah. Um, were your parents, like, encouraging of you to, like, pursue acting? Yeah. Um, my, my dad was, was for it. Um, my parents, unfortunately, divorced when I was five. Uh, I moved with my dad to California when I was seven. So, you know, again, going out to Los Angeles was going to be, in my mind, <laughs> the better bet than trying to become an actor in Michigan. But right. um, it, it was very much, like I said, the, the, the thought of a little kid. When, when you're, you're seven, when you're eight, you know, anything's possible. Anything's on the table. So um, I, I didn't know how to break through. And like I said, I, I fell into the, the trap of, you know, a couple of those Organizations that grab your money and don't really do anything with it. But yeah, this is one of those weird breaks, and everything fell into place. And then once the roles started happening, um, it just it just kept going. And Dream On was a um, a huge huge um, uh, plus for me because the season that they filmed was usually typically opposite of the season of most other TV shows filmed as well too. So as soon as Dream On was wrapping up for that year's season, the other shows were starting to get rolling. Um, for their seasons, and that was a great calling card as well too. Casting directors really love.
love Dream On. Um, they, <laughs> they were just genuine fans. So um, as an actor, that usually got me past the initial interview with the casting director right into the final meeting with the producers. Uh, it, it just, you know, kind of turbocharged that too. So uh, again, you know, just really amazing stuff. Yeah, and you mentioned uh, Dream On. Um, like each, like, HBO is known now for you know fabulous comedies, dramas, you know obviously sports documentaries, whatever. But that was like one of the really the first. I would say that was probably the first show that put HBO's like original stuff on the map. I know they had like uh, First and Ten before that, and they had you know a couple other things. But that was the one that really like I think solidified HBO as like a real like powerhouse, uh, and it was you know created by uh, Marta Kaufman and David Crane, who went on to create Friends. But um, that show was really special. Yeah, and it's to your point, uh, HBO was, I think, just starting to come into its own. They were starting to get those big power shows that, that people were um, really getting excited about. And it, it was a time, too, that, as you recall, a lot of people didn't have HBO. Right. So, you know, they, they, their calling card was showing, you know, movies that people wanted to see. But they, I think they realized that if they get... Um, tap into original programming to get people excited. That was the next step. And, and Dream On was part of that. And Dream On helped them out as far as becoming a show that was actually nominated for Emmys as well as Cable Ace Awards as well, too. So, um, yeah, to, to be part of that was incredibly exciting. Um, you know, HBO was really looking for something different. And when, when John Landis uh, was presented with all of these you know, black and white movies that they had the rights to, um, how brilliant he was with Marvin, with David, to figure out let's you know let's turn this into the thoughts inside of a inside of a guy's head. I mean that was just just brilliant because as you know you know those old black and white films as themselves there really wasn't any appeal there wasn't anything exciting about them so um, just an absolutely phenomenal job for them to take something that really wasn't terribly desirable and leverage it into something really cool really different. Um, and, and they did just such an amazing job. <laughs> I mean, the guys that, that were on our, our set, our crew, that had to go through all of those old movies just to harvest those those great clips, um, you know, really hats off to them, too. What a phenomenal job. Yeah, it's, it's funny. I was going to mention that. Like uh, that, that must have been, like, both, like, exciting and, like, pulling your hair out, going crazy, trying to find, you know, all those clips and going through all these movies, all these bad movies, and just finding the perfect clips. Yeah, and it's, so, and we're also obviously talking about 90s technology where, you know, you don't have digitally. Right. So they, they did have to literally watch everything. And then, you know, you, you, you can't tag it like you can nowadays. So they'd have to put, you know, just write down, you know, you know minute, uh, you know, five at 27 seconds, you know, X, Y, or Z takes place. This would probably be good for Martin to react to Situations A, B, and C. So, yeah, they they you know went down the rabbit hole for hundreds, if not thousands, of hours to catalog this. Um, but you know, when you when you watch the episodes, the clips were just amazing. I mean, it just all uh, went hand in hand. Yeah, I mean, the first two seasons are out on DVD now. I, I hope they will re- release the rest of the series. I'm assuming it's still like about you know the rights issues, correct? Yeah, I think so. I, I thought it was kind of unusual that they just did seasons one and two as well, too. Um, it, because I really think it, the show kind of comes into its own uh, around season three and four. Um, it, one, it was one of those shows where, if I'm being totally honest, I, I wish we would have stopped at season five. Okay. I felt like season, yeah, I felt like season six just kept just pushing on. You know, it, it's when you love a show, but then it, things just, start to feel kind of you're, you're beating a dead horse right so yeah if, if i had my druthers i would have wrapped things up at the end of season five but i think season three and four are were really strong for us where everybody knew their character the writing really was at its best um th- those are the most exciting ones for me and if you, if you go on youtube you can actually still see a lot of those episodes on there oh great yeah because I, I was i was searching for some of them and i have to you know I got to do a better job with my redefining my search. <laughs> well, you, you never know. As you know, shows go up, shows get pulled down. Shows yeah. go up, shows get pulled down. But my my wife had never seen Dream On before, so I was able to um, uh, show her that. And like like the Christmas episode we have is is absolutely one of my favorite ones. 
sitcoms. I think it's just very funny, and every single character in that episode is doing something interesting and, and different, and I'm, I'm just kind of a sucker for Christmas time uh, shows anyway, so that was a really good one. Right, and if I remember correctly, that was the one where a character lost his, his virginity, correct? <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yes, Silent Night, Holy Cow. Yeah. <laughs> the episode. And, um, you know, that's one of the weird things is I had I'd grown up with that cast. You know, I, I came on the show when I was just barely 12, and that, that was four years later. And we had an amazing run with our crew pretty much being the same crew throughout. So, you know, you, you, you saw them every single day. They really were, you know, like your family. And, and to, to do a sex scene uh, um, as a young kid is, would be embarrassing in, in general, but to do it in front of you know, your, your pseudo-family was, I think, four times, five times, six times more embarrassing to do that. So, yeah, I, I think I still might hold the record for being the youngest kid to lose his virginity. <laughs> <laughs> uh, normally, it's older kids or it's you know young adults doing it. But, yeah, that was... That was Super, um, super fun just because it, it was done in a very playful and, and silly way. It, it certainly wasn't um, uh, very overly sexualized, anything like that. And, and I think that's why the show worked. Is it had it had sex that you know flows through the show, um, but it was never. Uh, it, it was always funny and silly and, and done in a, a creative and, and happy way. It, it certainly wasn't a show that was trying to, I think, leverage sex in a you know in a in a kind of a, a way that's done with a lot of shows nowadays I mean it, it was always lighthearted. right now were you like were you allowed to stay on the set like when you weren't filming your your, your scenes to like watch the rest of the show because I mean like you, you said I mean you know the sex scenes the language or, or, or do you like have to go off the set for that um because of yeah because of age restrictions I was not allowed on set you know obviously they're doing um one, one of the sexier scenes or, or things like that um but, you know, Jeremy, as a character, was very angsty. And, you know, they they allowed me to really explore that with him. Uh, there, there were a lot of times, I remember even a scene with John Landis, who was directing an episode where I just wanted to amp it up. I really wanted to take his angstiness to the next level. And he, and he you know, kind of just questioned me between takes. He's like, really? He thinks I feel like you're, feel like you're really yelling here. And I'm like, I would, I would like to yell if I could. <laughs> right now because this feels more genuine to me so um that was kind of funny you know just talk about you know we all had that you know that dumb teenage angst where you look back and go oh man well why are you even angry about you're such a chowderhead there's nothing to be angry about but i was able to take that teenage angst and, and to you know in, in inject that into the character and i'm so thankful to um to john for letting me you know do that with that um that, that was one of the things I remember being in L.A. at the time, you know, bumping into kids who shouldn't have been watching Dreamon either. They were too young to watch Dreamon. Right. Uh, but most of them would say, you know, we appreciate what you're doing. We, we think you're portraying us um, in, in an actual light, and not in, not in a corny way. So thank you to, you know, the, the, the show and the writers and the producers for allowing me to really have fun with Jeremy and to try to make him as um, legitimate as possible as far as, you know, just typical teenage angst and, and um, not holding back and being able to present a character in a really real way. Yeah, and it certainly helped that the show was on HBO rather than a network. Right. Yeah. Yeah, that's, um, uh, you know, and that, it worked well. Uh, I, I think that, that anger and angst with Dream On, um, one of my favorite shows that I did in the 90s, where it, it was very, very different, was Lois and Clark. Right. Um, so, you know, I, I think the character of Jack, there was no one before uh, who was like him, and there's no one after him who was like him. Mm-hmm. I, think this, I think the show is, it was very cute, and, and the characters were, you know, kind of awe-shocked. Um, Jack basically did what he wanted to do, say, said what he wanted mm-hmm. to say. Uh, he just had a lot of attitude, and if you watch those, those four episodes, he really doesn't fit in with the overall vibe of the show, but I had so much fun with him, I think because of that. Um, the, the writers just seemed to, to want to create this little whirlwind, um, and, and that's what it was. So, you know, they, they didn't uh, pull me back, so I, I allowed him to be very sarcastic and um, angsty and uh, just a lot of attitude, and 
it was probably one of the funniest um, guest stars that, that I've done because of that, because of the fact that they, they didn't hold him back. Um, but he does seem very different and out of that little world if you if you watch it. Yeah, and you've you've done so many other guest writing roles, but we'll, we'll stick with Lawson Clark for a sec. Um, you meant it was pretty good experience for you, I'd imagine. But was why did it only last four episodes? Because like, it was the end of the first season, right? That you you finished your four episodes, correct? Uh, I want to say it was season two or three. It wasn't the first one. Um, so uh, I. I told this story before, so the, it's not necessarily the cat out of the bag, but um, Terry Hatcher really hated my character. Okay. <laughs> really, really, really hated my character. And um, one thing that a lot of people don't know is that Jack was the first person to discover Superman's identity. Right. Um, we, we were doing a table reading, and um, you know, there, there was a section where, where Jack... It, it, and I, I didn't, you know, I, I had not seen the pages yet. We were just reading around the table. And, you know, Jack winds up finding out Superman's identity. And, and, and Terry was, as soon as I said the word, absolutely incensed. If looks could kill, <laughs> she, would have, she would have burned me down to a crisp. I would have been, I would have been some embers uh, in, in my seat. And, you know, I just kind of shrugged my shoulders at her, kind of like, Gee, I didn't write these lines. It's not me. So um, she was, like I said, on, on fire about that. Uh, sure enough, I think it was mm, maybe 20 minutes later, there was a knock on our, our doors, and uh, <clears throat> they were passing out uh, the revisions of the script. And wouldn't you know, Jack now suddenly didn't discover Superman's identity. So um, I, I think it, it, was, it was a thought that I, I knew that this character probably wouldn't be continuing on, and it was just because... Carrie Hatcher was just not a fan of it, so um, it was it was fun while it lasted. <laughs> I, I was I was not surprised that um, that Jack didn't come back. And if and if I'm being really honest too, um, you know you, you don't want to go back to a set where you have that animosity. Right. You know, um, I, I had a great time with everybody else in that show, and you know I, I I never did get a chance to speak to Terry, and and I I don't know if she's changed, and I don't know if her her stance has softened. But it was just pretty clear that that was something that she wasn't excited about. She didn't like the way that the the, the character interacted with Superman. So, um, you know, say la vie. I went on to uh, I went on to other stuff she did too. But um, that, that's the answer. It just it came down to just Terry, one hundred percent. Yeah, that's a shame because it, it would have been nice to see a, you know basically not one of the main characters find out Clark's identity. Right. It, it, you know, it would have right. been it would have been nice. Yeah, yeah, you just move on, you know. Yeah, but like you say, you you guest starred in so many other roles during that time. You Blossom. I remember you like nine hundred two one zero. How how was I just going from like basically set to set? Did you have to, did the shows come to you, or did you actually had to audition for those roles? Uh, like I said, I am boy. I am so blessed that I had um, Dream On because. Dream On gave the casting directors uh, an idea of what I could do, and it gave them a lot of confidence in what they thought could happen in these guest star roles. So, you know, if you're if you're an actor, if you're, if you're just starting off, and if you just uh, are getting your, your feet wet uh, in the business, you won't you won't even see the casting director initially. You'll see the casting director assistant. If the assistant likes you, she'll bump you to an interview with the casting director. If the casting director likes you, she'll probably bump you to an interview with some of the producing staff, maybe maybe some of the directors. And then usually you have that final audition where everybody's there, or you have that audition where everybody's there, including the actor who you're going to, if you're lucky, um, play off against. So for me, with Dream On, that just was always fast-forward me to that those later stages of the interview. So, yeah, sure. I mean, I, I interviewed for nearly everything that I did, but then there were shows like Blossom that, that knew me from before. They'd bring me in for another character. Um, or other shows where they would just make a make an offer. So I would say I still probably interviewed for, gosh, maybe like 70% of ultimately what I did. But to, to interview at that elevated stage was, was so amazing. It, just, it, it saved everybody time. And for me, it was a huge leg up where I didn't have to keep fighting and scratching um, for that character. I could just 
um, do my best and, you know, just see where it went from there. But, yeah, it was great. I mean, so many, so many fun guest stars. Uh, it, it was just really neat to, um, you know, just jump into their world and um, get to know the people and, and then you just kind of move on. Um, ultimately, though, I think that uh, that was one of the reasons why I wanted to step away from acting was uh, with the inconsistency. I mean, as an actor, you can be on an incredible hot streak, but as you start to get older, you know, do you want to settle down? Well, how can you? When you have no one your next job is going to be there. You know, right. you want to have kids. How can, how can you have kids if you don't know when your next job is going to be there? So um, it was certainly fun while I was, you know, young, but as I started to get older, that inconsistency, um, it kind of worries you. And acting is like such a, a bizarre business. It does not care if you're well-educated. It does not care if you are a good person. You know, it, it cares about you, you know, hitting that mark and saying that line. And it, it, and there's also no consistency to it. it it's, it's just mind-blowing. I've had so many interviews where I just thought I killed it and, you know, you, you get rejected. Or, you know, I, I would have an interview where I'm like, Phew, boy, I did not bring my A game today and you get the part. A lot of people would say, you know, why would you ever walk away? Well, there's a million reasons to walk away. Um, it's a very toxic industry, as, as you know. I think everybody knows that. But, but to really um, walk it, breathe it, be amongst it, it is incredibly toxic. Um, and and there's, there's no consistency, as we talked about. And you never know when that next job is going to be there. And I've got some very, um, very, very good friends in Los Angeles who are still kind of going, you know, paycheck to paycheck, they'll, they'll book a job, that job will pay for them for a while, and then, then they're just back out into the great unknown, and I don't know, just for me, that was not going to be a long-term fit. Right. Well, it seems like you, you were brought up by your parents the right way. Yeah, I, I, think, I think so, too, um, and I, I think they really helped keep me grounded. Um, a lot of people get sucked into the industry, and it really changes who they are. Um, I, I like to consider myself someone who, who was an actor, but, the, but I know you bumped into these people before who goes, I am an actor. Right. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I'm an actor. Acting is everything. I, I, feel, I feel like acting is something that I did, but I wouldn't define myself as an actor. Um, I, I, I was so fortunate. It, it, just, it, it always seemed to come pretty easy to me, and that doesn't mean that I, I didn't you know, dig in and, and try, but you know, when you read about these actors who, who go completely method or they, they stay in character and you, you can't call them anything but the character, that just blows me away because <laughs> why? Acting is acting like you're not acting. Is what, that's one of my, my favorite things about acting. Yeah. So well, as soon as they say cut, stop acting like that person, be a normal human being, and then jump back in. I, I just I, I don't understand that level of method acting. I really, I really don't. It's just silly. Did you experience that in, on any of the sets you were on? Um, occasionally, yeah. yeah. Occasionally, there, there would be an actor who'd want to stay deep in the character. Here's here's what I would say to that. Um, I I totally believe in that method. If your character has to cry, right. um, I hate I hate when I watch a movie or a TV show and, and the actor or actress, um, you know, that they, they've got that crying face yet there's no tears coming out. It, it's it's such a disconnect for me because you know they're they're acting like they're crying but they're not really crying. So I had um, it, at least you know two or three projects where my character had to cry, and, and it is tough. And you, and you've got to get your mind to a really dark place, um, you know, to to get to those real tears. Um, so if you're doing that scene in between takes, that's when I think it's it's perfectly understandable to try to stay in the zone. Um, don't distract yourself. Don't get into other conversation. Try to try to stay in that mental state, um, so you can hopefully produce real tears again on the next take. So, I, I would say that's the time when you want to just kind of stay quiet and locked in. But I, I just I can't imagine just being the character for the rest of your day, or journaling as your character, or having the rest of the crew refer to you as that character's name. That 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 I don't get. I, that part I don't understand. Were there any actors that you were excited to work with and then just realized that these people are just awful human beings? <laughs> <laughs> um, I, so that, that's good. I, I'm not, I'm, without naming names, right. yes. And, and so, let me say this about actors. 
a lot of them are really uninteresting people. I mean, we boy, we, we, we love them, we read about them, we, we want to be part of their world. So many of them are so damn dull. Um, and and it, 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 well, I guess what, what it comes down to at the end of the day is, like I said, actors are really unusual because there's no um, requirements that normally society has for us. Like, you know, in our society, we expect someone to at least be a high school graduate. And, and we expect somebody to at least maybe even have a college education. You know, they've, they've gone through these life experiences which, which kind of change you and form you and mold you and go through all those things. As an actor, like I said, you don't have to have any of that. So you can just be the weirdest weirdo in the world. And as long as you can say your lines and hit your mark, it's okay. So, yeah, um, you, uh, you will meet people who are very devoid of personality. Like they can only be interesting when they are acting. So that, that's another version, too is the actor who, if they're not saying lines, they're very quiet with John and they have nothing interesting to say. Mm-hmm. Were there any, like, roles that you've, like, turned down that you were kind of regretted? Um, I, I could have. I, I, from when, I, when I was talking with the producers, um, I very could have been, well have been um, Do- Doogie Howser. Okay. Um, but I was I was doing Dream On at the time, and I, I couldn't I couldn't get off, and I couldn't break schedule to do that. So um, I, I guess that would that would have been an interesting one. Um, and obviously, <laughs> Neil is Neil is incredible, and right. he did a wonderful job. So I don't know if I I mean so so just to be clear, it, it was not that um, I took it from him or or vice versa. But I, I from what from what the producers told me, there was a very strong. Uh, possibility that that could have been mine had had things worked out scheduling wise, but you know, and, and, and again, everything in the end worked out just the way that it should have been. That's that's really one that comes to mind. Um, third Rock from the Sun. I was I was uh, in the final stages on that one too. Okay. Uh, on a personal level, I was going through some stuff where I just was not able to bring um, my A game, and that could have been another possibility as well too. I feel like I, I would have had a strong shot on that too. But um, I just wasn't mentally there at that time. I was just going through some things on a personal level that kind of took me, I think, out of the game on that. But no, I mean, I, I there's nothing I turned down that I that I regret. I mean, I, I feel like so excited about all the amazing things that I have done, and it is the sweetest thing in the world. Where um, on my Facebook page, uh, someone will see my one of my shows for the first time ever, like in South America. Um, like sometimes they come back and you know, the Stephen King movie of the week will we'll show in South America and they'll get excited and they'll write to me and I think their initial thought is that I'm still 13 or 14 years old right. you know that, that that character that they saw there they think it's, it's still me and it's, it's, it's not so um, I don't know why I, I just I these certain roles that I did really resonated with people and I'm so blessed because of that um, they seem to really love you know sometimes they come back um, blank check Star Trek, Dream On, um, Journey of the Heart. I mean, there's just, you know, I was, I was fortunate enough to do a lot of different roles, but it seems like, for whatever reason, some of these characters really resonated with people. Yeah, especially like a blank check. That, I mean, as, no offense, as bad as that movie was, it's, you know, it's a guilty pleasure. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm glad you mentioned that. I'm really glad you mentioned that. Of, of, all, of all the shows, that, of everything that I've done, I'm I'm the least proud of Blank Check. Right. <laughs> Blank Check is absolutely horrible. But yeah. here's here's the funny thing. I will bump into people and they'll go, Oh man, I love Blank Check. Blank <laughs> Check was the best. <laughs> and I, and what I realize is, is that they watched it as a kid and they've not watched it recently because I and again I showed it to my wife because she had never seen it. And I, uh, I was like, Watch how bad this thing is. And it, it is very, very poorly written, yeah. and it, it's all over the place. And all the and I, I, when people say that they love Blank Check, their mind is going back to when they were a kid. And as a kid, this little other other kid buying all the stuff with money and these toys, yeah. and that's super fun. I get it. So to a kid, it's a good movie. To an adult, it is absolutely horrible. Um, and since, since we're on it, let me, let me stay with it for a second. Another really super weird thing, right? You have Preston, who's pretty young, yeah. and he has kind of like this love interest, Shay, who's an adult woman. Yeah, and, and it was really <laughs> awkward and bizarre, and it makes the movie like really uncomfortable. 
it wasn't as bad initially when I first interviewed for that movie. The, the and I interviewed for the lead character, and at that time he was sixteen or seventeen. Okay. So, you know, it was you know he was he was obviously young for that Shea character, but it wasn't weird. It wasn't like oh my god, he's twelve. <laughs> so, so that movie went through a lot of rewrites. They kept playing around with things. Preston's character went from sixteen to seventeen, down to twelve. Um, I interviewed for him. I interviewed for his the part of his brother, um, which is the role that I eventually that I got for too. And uh, they just could not stop writing that script. And the more they rewrote it, the worse it became. I remember um, you know agreeing to the role in in Los Angeles, and it was it was filmed in Austin. And I was I was excited about it. It was it was a pretty good role. Like I said, the script kept changing, but it it, it was it was good. I, I thought it would, I thought it'd be fun in a, you know in a, in a lighthearted movie. Um, I finally got down to Austin and we did the table read and about 70% of my lines were gone. And I was like, wow, <laughs> you know, there's absolutely nothing you can do. But um, So I, it wound up being just being a great time of my life to enjoy the beautiful city of Austin because I had a lot of free days. I had to be there throughout the show, uh, probably throughout the, sh- the, the shoot. But yeah, they, they had sliced about 70% of my character stuff out of that. So. Um, yeah, Blanchett, check. It's good. <laughs> <laughs> it's just one of those films that if people really rewatch it, they'll go, "Oh my God, I was wrong. I was so wrong. This is so bad." Yeah, there's some movies that like you, know, you watch the kid and just don't put it on again. I mean, I, I, I've had that experience like with the Mighty Duck movies. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, but then um, it seems like every actor has his Law and R episode. And you, you weren't on that show. I figured, you know, of all the guest starring roles, you would have had a Law and Order. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, there's certainly enough of them, right? Yeah, um, Yeah, I, I, yeah, it, it was, it was always a nice combination of, of dramatic stuff and comedic stuff. But uh, yeah, I was never on that one. Um, I, you know, you, you go, you go to a million auditions. I'm pretty sure. I can't say for sure off the top of my head if I ever interviewed for it, but I'm sure I did. <laughs> they, were, they were everywhere at once. So. Yeah, and then you got um, the title role in Adventures of Jules Verne, which I believe was like the first show to be shot in HD. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, what was that experience that, like? Great. Well, that was uh, that was phenomenal, and uh, you're right. It was the first show ever to be shot in in high definition, and. Um, George Lucas uh, was, was very interested in it. He was very interested to see um, our dailies and to kind of see how it, you know, it, how it looked, how it came together. It, you know, I think for a lot of people, you, you watch like something on ESPN Classic, like you watch, you know, like I'm, I watch NBA Hardware Classic, a lot right. of you know, old NBA games, and, and it's just amazing that if you look at standard definition, you go, how did I ever look at that? How is that? How did I even make this out? You know, it just seems so weird, you know. So when we were on set and, and we're doing the, you know, doing the playback of the scene um, after we did a take, it was just it was incredible to see, but it was it was kind of startling too, just because you're not used to seeing every pore in, a, in an actor's face, you know, um, or just just the way the lighting and the shadows um, hit the set. So the, the playback was amazing. We, you know, we really knew that obviously we we're at the cusp of something incredibly cool. And one of the first things I thought to myself about this, the technology is like, this is really going to help people fall even deeper uh, in love with these characters and with these sets because you feel like you can reach in there and, and, and you can touch them. So that was very, very exciting. Um, shooting in Montreal for, for nine months was just a joy anyway. Um, just the, the culture, um, the, the, the Quebecois, um, uh, Spirit and vitality. I loved it. I, I absolutely loved that that cast and crew. And um, again, to, to do something with high definition right at the, right at the cusp was uh, just just amazing. And um, I had a fun time on the show. I think it was one of the very few roles, though, that forced me into doing something I didn't want to do. And I my my version of Jules Verne was going to be similar to what the show was, but I wanted him to be a lot more serious, and I, I wanted him to be uh, a lot more grounded in, uh, in uh, just not going over the top, not campy, and it seemed like there was immediately a, a kind of a pushback where they wanted the show to be campier and a little little uh, wackier, right. a little less serious, so 
for me, it was always a challenge on that show trying to find the middle ground because I didn't want it to be campy. I didn't think it needed to be campy, and in fact, in fact, I, I, I think we could have done a, a different version of it. So while I had a good time with it, that was one of the roles where I was constantly struggling on set to try to um, just juggle between the two. That 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 to me was the tough part. I loved the casting crew. I loved the writing. I loved the city, um, the, the the fake Parisian streets that they created for us to to walk down. I mean, all of that was just super top notch. It just was tough for me as an actor because I really consistently wanted to do something different from the character. And sometimes when I watch an older episode of it, I'm like, ah, man, I, I can see. I, I hope no one else can see it, but I can see myself struggling even within a scene uh, because I want to do something different, and I know that I can't. Yeah, well, it seems like you can like watch your old stuff. It seems like a lot of actors can't. Oh well, it, it, it's really tough. It, it's it's tough in the sense that um, I I am a perfectionist, and I'll, I'll watch a take and um, I'll go, wow, whew, that was not that was not my best. Um, <laughs> there is there is a very effective trick that actors can do to get a lot of their work in. So let's say you're, you're working with a director, and he or she, and this happened a lot of times on Dream On. Um, where they'd want Jeremy to say or do something that I thought was, was, was just different than what I wanted to do. And I, while I respected their opinion, it's like, I've done this character for four years now. I, I know how we do it. So if, an act, uh, if the director wanted you to do a take their way, um, one of the tricks that I used to do is I would, I would uh, pretend like I was doing their way, but I would act it out very poorly, as in uh, like a, a take they couldn't use. It was so bad. The acting was so bad using their version that they couldn't use it, which forces them to go in editing back to the version that you wanted to do instead. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so that's kind of a dirty trick, but that was one that I did throughout the years. If I really genuinely disagreed with the director, I wasn't going to be rude, and I, and I, I wasn't going to embarrass them and say that I, I wasn't going to do their version of it. I just would do a, a horrible version of what they were looking for, which forced them to use my version instead. Mm. Sneaky. <laughs> Yeah, that's that's one of those you know, little uh, tips and tricks that you, you probably don't hear about, but I, I use that very successfully over the years. Right, that's that's good. Now you mentioned NBA Hardwood Classics. Uh, you still occasionally will put that on. Uh, still love that with Marv Albert. And frankly, that was a hell of a show, and just watching those old NBA games brings back memories. Yeah, I I love it, uh, and and uh, you know the classic NBA on on NBC. Yeah. Uh, song. I mean that. Yeah, the John they, Tesh they, song. Yeah. <laughs> the John Tesh song should just uh, just play on every single NBA broadcast, no matter what, <laughs> whether it's NBC or Game on Fox or uh, that. That should just be the song moving forward. That should be that's the national anthem of a basketball game. Yeah, I love it. I love watching it. I'm such. I'm a huge, huge fan of the game. I've got a million books on basketball. I just devour um, information and it's. Uh, so interesting, I, I believe, like to watch these games and go, could player X compete nowadays? You know, how how would they do? Or, you know, you go, go in reverse. Take someone like Shaq at his peak and put him back in the 50s or 60s. You know, what would his numbers have looked like then? So, yeah, the NBA has been something I've, I've always been passionate about. I, I, um, uh, I've been a, a Lakers fan growing up in Los Angeles, and I've, I've, I, I love them. But I love basketball too. I mean, I, I will still watch a game between two teams which aren't the Lakers just to just to dive in. As, as a dad, as a father, sometimes it's tough to find a little hour block. But um, especially with the playoffs coming in soon, it'll, it'll be fun too. I think there's going to be some really good matchups. Yeah, I haven't really watched it like recently. I was hardcore like in the '80s and '90s, early 2000s. My son is, is getting more more into it now for some reason. He's a Minnesota Timberwolves fan. I don't know how that happened, but uh, we'll, we'll play NBA 2K17, and we'll just, you know, that's pretty right. much my uh, NBA fix for the moment. <laughs> <laughs> that's, I mean, that's the absolute best to me. I love, it, it, when I play 2K, it, I almost always pick the, the retro teams. I obviously enjoy today's teams, but yeah, those, those retro matchups for me um, are the most fun. I wish, I wish they would get some of the faces a little bit better, too. I, I still feel like Larry Bird looks like this kind of like melted wax figure. And they've got that, this floppy hair in him that doesn't quite work. But, yeah, no, I, I love that. I love the fact that they decided to do the all-time team for, for each of the teams, too. 
if anything, I just wish they would do more of those teams. Yeah, I, I would I would purchase a game that had just, you know, 50 or 60 classic teams just by itself. Yeah, it's funny you mentioned the classic teams because that's pretty much all my son and I play. And he, ironically, he picks the Lakers because that team, you, you can't lose with, with that team, you know, with Wilt and George Mikan, yeah, yeah. you know, Shaq, Kareem, and you have his favorite player on that team yeah. besides Kobe is Byron Scott because Byron Scott never misses three pointers in that game. <laughs> Right. Yeah, they they really cranked up the rankings on some of those classic teams. I mean, it seems like everybody's like a, a 96 or a 98 on the Lakers squad. So, um, yeah, it, it's <laughs> or, or if you take, you know, 95, 96 Bulls, too. I mean, they're extremely difficult to, yeah. to beat them. But my frustration with the computer is, is sometimes it just seems like it wants to do that rubber banding effect that, the, that, that Mario Kart does. Like, it wants to keep that game tight. If I if I break out to like a you know a ten point lead, suddenly their their journeyman guy off the bench is Certain. like nailing threes. Yeah, and then all of a sudden that's, you're cold. Yeah, that's my only gripe about it is the rubber banding. Yeah, and uh, you know there'll, there'll be a lot of steals, and it's you know like it's frustrating. But it's funny that you mentioned Larry Bird because I always thought he looked like uh, Robert Reed from Brady Bunch. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I mean, obviously he has such a, such a distinctive face. So with as much detail as they put into his characters, it's like, guys, if you're going to have Larry Bird in the game, make him look like Larry Bird. I, I don't know who you're modeling that, that yeah. face after, but, it, but it's not him. Yeah, I, absolutely. But, yeah, it's it's definitely our, like, favorite game the two of us play. What else do you play now? Um, I was, uh, my Christmas gift was uh, the PS4. Okay. So I've, been, I've really been enjoying that. Um I, right now, you know, I feel like Sony's got a lot of games that kind of like demo the powers of it, but you don't have a like a, a huge player. Like, a, I wish they'd make a platform like you know, like a Mario um, or a Sonic, something like that, where you could really experience it. So, yeah, I'm, I'm impressed with the virtual reality. I really love it. I think it's um, pretty um, low cost for the you know the tech that you can get. I enjoy that. Um, past that, you know, like I said, it, it's it's tough to find time as a dad, and I, I certainly don't regret it. To, you know, find those game moments. Um, I'm waiting for uh, Red Dead Redemption 2 to come out. I loved, I loved the first game. Right. I thought it was phenomenal. And uh, I know they keep pushing that one back, but I think it's worth it. And then um, the one I'm looking forward to coming out soon, too, is uh, Super Mega Baseball 2. And the reason I, I, I think that one's so much fun, I, I didn't play the first one, but you can create your own squads. You can put together your teams and customize them and um, create their their abilities, and just on a kind of a funny level, I, I have a bunch of friends who I want to put on one team, right. and I have a bunch of a bunch of coworkers I want to put on another team, and then it, it, I just I love the fact that you can customize it. So I'm gonna, I'm going to fill these teams up with uh, friends and families and acquaintances, and um, I, I even I even created one of like you know of the characters that I I've done before too. So you know Jules Verne's like batting third. <laughs> <laughs> Um, I like I like the customizable. Uh, you know, if you recall, if we, if we want to go way back in video games, there was there was a time when you didn't have the players. You know, they could only put their numbers on their backs right. and, and have some of the attributes. Um, and then you have games that just break through, like um, you know, we we talked about EH, uh, probably EA Sports Hockey. Uh, you know, especially when when the LA Kings were were yeah. good. NHL '94. <laughs> yes. I just played the heck out of that. It's just phenomenal. So, um, yeah, and, and then, you know, you look back and, at that same video game, kind of like Blank Check, and you look at, you look at <laughs> it and you go, wow, how was I okay with those graphics? Right. I, I don't even know what I'm looking at, and the sounds are horrible, and, uh, you know, you have all these broken animations where you're, like, trying to pass to another player. So, um, yeah, it, it's funny, and that's, you know, being a dad, it's going to be really cool to show my daughter, you know, this is what dad did. You know, we, we didn't have this little device that you carried around in your pocket that could give you an answer to any question you have about anything in the world. Um, I, I grew up loving reference books. I, I read so much reference because I loved, I loved facts. I loved facts. Yeah. So, um, you know, for her to be able to, to, you know, she's never going to understand a world without Wikipedia, you know. And going to a library, and it's, it's mm-hmm. yeah, you really miss it. But I would, yeah, I, I would play NHL '94 on, on like on the Genesis in college until 
the thing would get really hot. You couldn't even touch it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, and that's. I'm not sure if it was '94. That was that one year where you, where you kind of like in swingers, you could knock somebody in on the ice and make them bleed. Yes. <laughs> I mean, that was the that was the ultimate. Like, yes, yes, what a check! Really got that guy. Or, um, gosh, I remember when the the San Jose Sharks were were first on the game, and they everybody was just so slow. You could not move out. You couldn't move up the ice. It just felt like turtles. It was, <laughs> but it was it was fun. So yeah, yeah. I I, I remember um, NHL hockey on uh, Genesis uh, intersecting with uh, Nirvana smells like Team Spirit. Like I would play that song, and then when it gets you know aggro and gets aggressive, that's always when I wanted to like check somebody like really hard to to sync it up with the music. Yeah, I just remember uh, Jeremy Roenick was just unbeatable in that game. Yeah. Yeah, there were certain players, right? Pavel Bure was, was Bure so was good bad. Too. Yeah, too. yeah, he was he was like impossible to you know to, to stop him too. But yeah, um, Ronick, like you said, I, I'm sure you probably even read it. There's articles that thought that he was you know too overpowered, kind of like Tecmo Bowl with Bo Jackson. Bo Jackson, yep. <laughs> that, that that was another yeah. fun game too, because either with Bo Jackson, even with Reggie White, you can just get go in line of scrimmage and immediately sack the quarterback. Right. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, but um, Chris, this was awesome. Thank you so much for a few minutes today, and best of luck. Yeah, sure, my pleasure. Um, uh, it's uh, certainly fun to talk about the '90s. Uh, you know, obviously, it's it's a decade that uh, we don't very close to our hearts. A lot of fun stuff going on, and uh, you know, thanks for helping me relive it too. And a special thanks to Chris for joining us today. I mentioned in the interview that he was the only actor to portray three different characters in a single Star Trek episode. We all know, we all know Brent Spiner did that with Data, Lore, and their creator, Dr. Soon. You can follow me on Twitter at TheFirstNola19. Be sure to like the page Reliving My Youth on Facebook. Go to iTunes. You can check out the past episodes we've had with all the great guests. And while you're there, please rate and review the show. Special thanks to everyone who's listening. I can't do it without you guys. And be on the lookout for another episode of Reliving My Youth real soon.